Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, why do you make the choices you make? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. Joining us today is organizational psychologist Laura Gallagher to talk to us about being intentional in other wise thoughts that she is going to share with us today. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing great. Thanks. How about you, Seth? Doing really well. I'm always very focused when I speak with you because I know you want people to be intentional. So as a lawyer, I really try to be intentional in what I say, and I'm hyper-intentional when I'm talking to you. So I'm a little nervous, actually. Wow. So you step up your game even more for me. (laughs) Well, I will share with you that Sometimes I think that I make my best legal arguments walking back from the courthouse, which is never a good time because the hearing is over. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't want that to happen today. We don't. When we talked about bringing guests on the show and and starting this part of our process, uh, you were one of the very first people that Seth brought up. We got to have we got to have Laura on the show. I am curious as you think about, uh, because when, when you talk to me, when I hear, oh, why do people make decisions that they make? It, it doesn't start for me with the divorce process. It starts for me with the why did you get married process in the first place. Valid question. Uh, I know we're here to talk about divorce, but, uh, you know, what, what is it that, um, what is your framework around thinking about these, this sort of intentionality for seeking intentionality uh, in leading up to uh, dissolution? Pete, before we get there, I did read a study that we should talk about. Yeah. The leading cause of divorce oh. is marriage. Seth. Just wanted you to know. Somebody, we got to put that article in the notes. <laughs> 100% Very profound. Of, the co- of the times. People who are divorced and got married. That's staggering. Yeah. Wow. Maybe they should stop doing that. Staggering. <laughs> they should. <laughs> Doc, it hurts when I do. Okay. Uh, so so tell me, uh, give, give us a sense of your, your place in this. Well, so we look at choice as a tool, a very pragmatic tool. And one of the first ways that we break down this idea of choice is by recognizing that some of the choices that we make as human beings are conscious choices, and a lot of them are subconscious choices. And so in in my work, really broadly, I focus on helping people become more self-aware so they can see some of the choices that they've been making and how they're actually creating the situations that they find themselves in. If somebody fails to do that, then they really lack self-accountability. They start to play the blame game. They start to play the victim. And most importantly, they feel really um, powerless to actually create anything that they want for themselves. And so helping them first look at, okay, if I'm really honest with myself, what choices have I been making to lead me to where I am today? There seems to be a a position in what you're saying here that could lead you either to stagnate in a sort of frustrating, loveless marriage or accelerate toward divorce. Yeah. I mean, it could definitely go, you know, either direction. Um, And the main thing that we like to focus on when we talk about subconscious choices, well, there's really two things. One is that as humans, we tend to make a lot of choices that become almost our personality from when we're really, really young. And so that's a piece of it, right? Right. So how do we even know? How do I know if I'm making a subconscious choice? So it can be as simple as choosing to reflect even over like the last five minutes of your life. 
So one of the exercises that we do, for example, is um, depending on if it's virtual or in person, is we just give people about two minutes, not even two minutes, to try to make a decision in a group. And then we have them come back to main session. We have them close their eyes. And I list out dozens of different choices that they just made in those two minutes. So if I'm asking you all, hey, I'm just going to give you two minutes to figure out who's going to be the leader of your team. That's your decision. So many choices that you make. Do I start the conversation or do I follow the conversation? Depending on who starts the conversation, do I respond or not respond? If they're making a decision really quickly, do I notice if I have a preference about that? If I disagree with what they're saying, do I speak up or choose to go along with it? And then for each one of those, what's that about? Right? Am I deciding to go go with the flow because maybe I like they're all older than me and I want to respect that? Or maybe I'm the only person from my ethnic group and I feel awkward speaking up. Or I avoid conflict. I'm just gonna do it. I want to avoid conflict. Yeah, it's like maybe I come in with a certain intention. I think I'm going to do something, but oh my gosh, that person seems to have a really strong opinion. I don't think that I want to jump in and you know throw my hat in the ring. And so I just take them through this series of questions to highlight like, whoa, how many choices did you just make? And how many of those were you thinking about consciously at the time? And how many of them only just occurred to you now because I asked you to stop and reflect? And then of course it gets it can get deeper from there because let's take your example. Somebody's avoiding conflict. Okay, well, so what's that about? And this is where it comes back to our defenses. So we all want to avoid pain. That's part of how we're programmed as humans. We want to try to avoid pain. People are going through a divorce. It's unfortunately, I see it all the time. It's all about, not all, but a lot of it is about pain. It's about fear. It's about not seeing your children again, not having money having to move yeah. homes, um, maybe having to go back into the workforce. I haven't worked for 15 years. I've been raising the kids and they're just scared. So when you say, oh, it's about avoiding pain, mm-hmm. I, I, I always tell my clients, you can't go around divorce, over divorce. You got to go through it. That's so true. This gets to exactly kind of what's running around in my head. How how do you go through it when we're conditioned to avoid it and the entirety of the experience you're about to go through is pain? Yeah. Right? Because how many people, even people who are really seeking a divorce, how many people are going through that and not experiencing some level of pain? Yeah, loss is painful. Seth, I mean, not many, right? The loss in general, even if you are in a in a terrible marriage, for whatever reason that is, it's painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like people will say, Something to the effect of, I can't believe I wasted 10 years of my life. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And this is more if you have kids, but I also say if you don't, there had to be some good times within those 10 years. Let's not just block it all as bad. But how many people, when they're going through a divorce, are able to make that pivot? And I guess that's where I'm where I'm leaning here is like the level of introspection, right, and sort of self-reflection that is required when you're in a place of great stress has got is extraordinary right to be able to come back and say okay i'm not i i'm going to mu- build this entirely new muscle and pivot so that i'm not focusing on just the horrible things that i experienced in the last 10 years but but 
there was some good and that I'm going to have something to look forward to, that there are some silver linings. You know, we've talked uh, before on the show about, you know, some of the silver linings that come out of divorce that you may not be anticipating. So my question is right in the middle. How do you teach yourself to start to pivot in in this new direction, to start to see um, that you you might be stuck in the in the negative? Being able to lean on our our prefrontal cortex is really powerful. So, you know, we're obviously still going through this um, fabulous pandemic and that is COVID-19. And so I, I have worked with a lot of my clients on how can we adapt and deal with this difficulty? Of course, now it's pretty much become our new normal. Um, but in the beginning, it was like, hey, we're losing a lot. This is super painful. And so when I talk about this whole idea of change, to pull on your point, Pete, there's loss with every single change. And so a divorce, even if I was the person saying I would like to have a divorce, I'm the one that's bringing this change into my life. There's going to be things that I'm losing. There's going to be things that I'm gaining. And that's always true. The same is true in a choice to get married, right? I could be marrying the man of my dreams and I'm gaining things and I'm losing things because that's a part of change. Right. And so the prefrontal cortex is this cool thing that we have as humans that actually lets us choose intentionally where we want to put our focus. And they have to want to, right? They have to want to. There is, because there is a payoff for a lot of people who are going through this kind of potentially traumatic event where they they want to let themselves just sit in you know, their anger or sit in their sadness or sit in their pain. If they want to do that, then that's where they're going to be. If they feel ready to feel different, then they get to do that. They can choose to shift their focus at any point in time to what they're gaining, to the the times, you know, over those 10 years that were beautiful, the things that they're still carrying with them from those 10 years, it's the time is never lost. So to put that in the divorce context, Laura, are you saying that if you're going through this process, you're certainly be grieving, there will be some loss, but you can make the choice. If you slow down, you can make the choice and say, I am going to focus on this weekend, I can do anything I want that I haven't been able to do before because I always had to check with my spouse. Yeah, absolutely. Focus on a game. And it's part of the reason that we focus so much more. We, there's two main reasons we focus on loss disproportionately. One is it, it's an evolutionary strategy for us, right? Evolutionarily speaking, loss might mean I don't have the resources that I need to literally survive. Most of the time, we're not actually facing that anymore. And so our, our brains give us this massive, overly emotional response to the idea of loss. That's a part of it. The second reason we focus disproportionately on loss is because it tends to feel more tangible. It's like, hey, this is a thing I had. I know what it feels like to have this thing. And now I'm not going to have this thing that I've got specific experiences with. And so to your point, Seth, about being able to slow down, I can slow down and actually allow myself to imagine what those gains are. And I can start to picture them with more specificity. Like, I love how you said that, Seth, like, oh, this weekend, I wouldn't have to, like, that's very specific. This weekend, I wouldn't have to ask, whoa, that's cool. Hey, what else? And so we don't often allow ourselves enough time to really think about and imagine all of the, all of the gains and all of the benefits from any change. It's interesting you talk about focusing on the gains and not on the losses. Whenever I'm talking to anyone about a settlement and they're trying to make the decision whether to settle their case, I am very clear in stating you will never settle your case if you focus on what you're not getting. You will only settle your case if you focus on what you are 
getting. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of that same concept? Exactly. Yes. This gets to a question on equity, right? I mean, so much of the divorce process, and I'm, I, I, you know, Seth, catch me when I start lying. Uh, so much of the divorce process starts, it seems, with this adversarial approach toward equity, toward it. it's not fair. If I don't get this, that's not fair. He's getting more than I am or she's getting more time than I am. It's not fair. It's not fair. And it seems like it's hardwired in us when we deal with this sort of combative uh, approach to, uh, you know, getting into to litigation and to litigate a divorce. It's it becomes like uh, it's not fair. I want more. I got to get more. I got to get this out of it or or to find balance is is so hard. Um I interviewed a doctor uh, once, Bill Dodson, and he said something that stuck with me uh, as kind of a mantra. He said, I have to say this every morning. I am the grateful recipient of life's unfairness. And it changes the way your brain approaches this argument of equity. And I wonder if there isn't some of that that you would guide us through toward approaching a separation like this. How do you reprogram yourself to adapt to the fairness, unfairness calculation in a divorce process? That one gives me some pause. And I think it's because, wait, does this show have an E rating? I don't know. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll you, be gentle. What do you want? You um, don't it. be gentle. Got, we, we can, it's just a don't box. Be gentle. It's just a checkbox. Go ahead. So, I mean, something I honestly say all the time is fuck fairness. Because life's not fair. So I, I just think that it's a, it's a, um, it's a flawed standpoint from which to operate, right? If that's my basis for wanting to make decisions, or if I'm looking at that as my primary criterion for success, um, I think that I'll experience pain my whole entire life. And so I'm not sure, I get, it gives me pause, your question gives me pause, because I think I've had that mentality for a very long time, and I'm not sure that I'm well equipped to guide somebody away from that. I've just long recognized how unfair life is. On the fuck fairness? I don't deal in fairness. Right. You are programmed not to deal in fairness. Well, I deal with the legal system in in Florida. And remember, check your local jurisdiction. Check with your lawyer. In Florida, family law courts are a court of law and equity. So you have the legal aspect. But then ultimately, this judge can do what they believe is equitable, which, Mm -hmm. you know, people say is fair. If, if I'm in court arguing equity, everybody in that courtroom knows that the law is not on my side because I'm already falling back to equity. Mm-hmm. And if I'm arguing the law, I could also argue equity. Judge, the law is fair in this case and all that. I never deal with fairness. And even if it turns out at the end of the process, it's very equitable. It's still, quote unquote, unfair because you had to go through that whole process to get there. You had to go through discovery and depositions and a trial. That's just not fair. I don't deal in fairness. Hmm. I deal in what are the problems? How do I get you through this process? What are my responsibilities as a lawyer to you? And how can I help you try to make the best decisions when you're faced with here are some choices? And that's where I think that a lot of people going through this process will make choices that are not in their best interest and they struggle. And I think intuitively they know it, but they just can't get past it. A big part of this comes back to how do I feel about myself? That's what's happening for each person. How, 
they feel about themselves has everything to do with how they're going to make choices in a process like this. And while I can't make you feel any kind of way about yourself, I can treat you in such a way that I might make it easier for you to feel good about yourself in my presence. This is, I think, really, really hard for couples who are going through a divorce, right? There's probably, like we've already talked about, a lot of hurt. There could be potentially, you know, betrayal. At some point in time, they theoretically thought this is going to be forever. And that's not happening now. And so even something as simple as if I treat my spouse or former spouse with kindness in this process, how might they make different choices about me? And then what I get to do for myself is pay attention to if my former spouse is being unkind to me, they're not listening well to me or they're name calling or they're trying to drag my name through the mud or whatever it may be. In what ways do I find myself then choosing to do something that's not in my best interest just because I'm hoping that it screws that person over too, right? The race to the bottom. Yeah, that's where we start to really lose it. And so it's the kind of thing where, again, I'd want somebody to be as intentional as possible. If I understand that I'm doing this and it's not in my best interest financially, it's not in my best interest for what might happen with custody of the kids. And I'm choosing to do it anyway because my my interest in vengeance is that high? Okay. But I think most people, when they really come from a conscious place, they're not going to make those kinds of poor decisions. And a lot of it is about being able to slow down and check out what am I feeling so triggered about? Why am I feeling so insecure in this person's presence? I hear you say things like that, and I'm always careful to check how much is that a real life thing and how much am I living in a movie trope? Because you see this all the time, right? There's a divorce and she gets custody of this thing he cared about all this much and and out of like she's just going to burn it to the ground just because it's that, that's a movie. That's a TV. That's season one of Ted Lasso right now. So like how how often do you see people making decisions like that that are that are based from this like lizard brain part of us for vengeance? How often is is that a real thing? I'll come back to your fairness example, right? So like I had an example with my um, with my former spouse, actually. So we had tenants and it was difficult, right? We were renting out a house. It was really difficult and they were not meeting the, the requirements and we offered them a deal and blah, blah, blah. Essentially, we were going to withhold their security deposit because they didn't meet the terms that we had set out mm-hmm. and they, you know, threatened us with legal action. And so my former spouse was very focused on fairness. And he was like, ready to be like, let's go hire a lawyer. You know, let's go battle this out. And I'm like, okay, so hold on. Let's Love that guy. <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> I knew it was just waiting. Oh, dog whistle just went off somewhere. Like, so, uh, and, you know, sorry, Seth, but that sounded awful to me. I was like, that sounds awful. It sounds expensive. I have no faith that it's going to go in our direction. What if we just offered them 500 bucks back? Like, what if that was all, all it took? Right. And he had to work extremely hard. And and my former spouse is um, intelligent and amazing in a lot of ways. And he had to work really hard and with a lot of coaching and urging for me to get past his own anger about the unfairness of the situation. Sure. Like he was ready to go spend a lot more money and put them in a situation where they were spending a lot more money just because it wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And this is a very like even tempered person. But because we were going through our divorce, he was, you know, feeling all that loss. He wasn't feeling good about himself. And so he was far more likely to get into this. In my world, we call it red zone, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was just defensive. He wasn't thinking clearly. It was about winning. It wasn't about actually finding the best solution. So I think it happens constantly. That makes me sad. Humans, right? Well, here's the good news, Pete. There are good lawyers out there. (laughs) 
that when that happens and they call you, they'll say, let's do the math. How much is it going to cost to hire me to go to court to make this argument Yeah. versus just give the guy 500 bucks? And along with that, sometimes I will get the call and say, it's not about the money. It's about the principle. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. And my response to that is I will never ask you to negotiate away your principle because that's the core of who you are. So uh, that's a fool's errand for me. You're not going to agree. But what doesn't make sense to me, why are you going to pay me all this money to go in front of a neutral third party who you do not know called a judge? That's a government employee to see whether they agree with your principles. Because if they do, who cares? They're your principles. Why do you need someone else to validate that? And if they don't agree with your principles, you're not going to all of a sudden say, my principles are wrong. Let me reevaluate. You're going to say, the system screwed me. Right. It's the system's broken. They didn't see it my way. Right. Yeah. All right. You know, we're talking about the law now, Seth. I think we need to do that. And we're going to have Laura help us navigate that uh, very sticky courtroom. But first, we need to define a term. Here we are back at Black's Law Dictionary, page 579, because Laura mentioned fairness, and we know her views on that. We thought we would work with equity. Equity, a noun. Fairness impartiality, even-handed dealing. Number two, the body of principles constituting what is fair and right. Natural law reflects the influence of equity on the Declaration of Independence. It just means what's fair. But the question in court is, do you really get that? We're going to talk about how to talk with your lawyer next. Okay, so we're talking about we were talking about um, working with your lawyer in this case. And Seth, you were you were taking us down this road of the white hat lawyer, let's say, uh, who comes into the rescue to give you a dose of reality. Uh, when you may be seeing things from your lizard brain, right? Uh, how does how does one expect to be communicated with by their with their lawyer? Uh, you know, when they're in a place of uh, maybe not making choices that are that are in their best interests. Very rarely will a client come to a lawyer and say, "Here's my problem. Please fix it." They just start telling the story. And it's the lawyer's job to figure out what, if any, legal problem there is and what, if any, legal solution there may be. And then to discuss with the client the process, how much it will cost to get there, what are the different potential outcomes based upon the information the lawyer is receiving. But I think we should talk more about how you communicate what you want, what you're afraid of, where you're coming from. Because that might then drive different, more broad-based solutions other than let's go to court. So let me just give you an example of what I'm 
talking about. Well, and this is important. I want to just as a footnote, because it feels like, you know, we've talked about how important it is for me to become best friends with my lawyer. And you have told me time and again that I'm not going to be best friends with you. Um, and you're going to have to pay me more and that that thing doesn't exist. Well, it seems like all these stories are stories that I would tell a lawyer that I want to be my best friend. You might be communicating the same information. When you say, I want to be your best friend, you want to tell me your story. Right, right. Which is fine. You can say, she does this, he does this, and you can go on and on and on. But what I am going to do is try to redirect you about what do you want. I work hard on that. So by way of example, when you're getting divorced, there might be a house. Whether you have kids or not, there's a house. Sure. Your name is on the house your spouse's name and on the house. My question is, do you want to keep the house? The answer I frequently get is, I don't know if I can afford it. That wasn't my question. My question is, do you want to keep it? And if the answer is yes, then the next question is, can we afford it? I don't have to talk about whether you can afford it or not if you don't want to keep it. Right. And you don't want to say, I really want the house. He'll never pay me enough alimony where I can keep the house and blah, blah, blah. Like, if you go step by step, but you get so wrapped up into it that you might convince yourself just to tell your lawyer, I don't care about the house, but maybe you do. I mean, helping people get clear about what they want is uh, extremely powerful, it's underrated and wildly important. Well, and it strikes me that when you're talking about your legal team, that that's not a thing that you that uh, all lawyers are equally good at. Is that I mean, is that a fair statement? Well, there's good podcast hosts and there's bad podcast hosts, right? There's good lawyers and bad lawyers. Right, right, right. But I just mean like the intentionality, like a, a lawyer that is imbued with a drive toward intentionality is is like that's a that's a gift. And that might be something that I'm saying you should be looking for in in looking for your lawyer. Yeah, I think I mean, I'm all for being very intentional for sure. But I think if your lawyer is not pointing you in that direction. And Laura, correct me if I'm wrong. When you're going to talk to your lawyer, you're going to want to have a reason why you're calling your lawyer. What are you trying to get out of that conversation? That forces you to be intentional. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say so. Because otherwise, if you're just calling to complain, that's where I say I'm not your best friend. I'm not your friend at all. I'm your lawyer. Don't call me to complain. Go tell it to a friend. I'm here to solve a problem. So sometimes it's hard for the client to even articulate what problem do they have that they're asking you to resolve. So let's talk about how you build a plan for having that conversation when you're in a lizard brain space, right? Walk us through the way you want to set up a conversation with your lawyer about preparing for dissolution. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to give me a specific challenge, like, uh, you know, a specific call you might receive, Seth? What does that look like? The house example, Laura, if you're, what about that? Does that work for you, Laura? You can give us an example on how you might coach someone to prepare for that conversation. It could be really useful for people going through this process to also have a therapist. 100%. Right? If even just for that very, like, temporary period of time, because I think that really good therapists um, and potentially really good coaches, but therapy is probably the most effective route in this kind of case. Part of what they do really well is they take that like whole jumble and sort of picturing like different balls of yarn kind of all mixed together in this person's crazy brain, right? And they just sort of nicely ravel them into the separate balls and the therapist can say, okay, so it sounds like this is the decision that you're struggling to make. 
or I'm hearing you say this is what you want, and yet this is also coming up for you. So I think it's probably worth investing in that. To your point, Seth, if they're trying to just complain to you or you're you know, trying to work out that piece of it when you're like, wait, what is the problem? So I think that's really important. And if someone's just on their own um, and they want to try to prepare, I think getting a handle on their emotional state is probably the most important thing. When we feel that strong emotional pull, right when the lizard brain is all activated, our IQ tends to drop about 20 points. We don't, we're not operating as the best problem solvers. And so one of my favorite strategies is name it to tame it. Literally identify what is the emotion that I feel right now? Do I feel angry? Do I feel hurt? Do I feel a sense of despair? The more specific you can be about naming, identifying, describing your emotional state, the more you're going to be able to actually process through it much faster. And it it helps you get actually back into that prefrontal cortex and away from the lizard brain. And there's also a specific way that people can identify with the emotions too. Instead of saying, I am mad, one step that's more effective is to say, I feel mad. Now I'm not over-identifying with my emotion. One step further is to say, so part of me feels mad. And immediately what I've done is I've left space open for me to notice any other feelings that I have, because maybe part of me is mad and part of me is also sad. And maybe part of me is relieved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe all these things are happening at the same time. And there's an element of emotional maturity and sophistication that exists when people are able to make space for all of that and see all of that at the same time. And being able to separate and work through those emotional states, I think is a really important step to clarify like, okay, so then what do I want? I've gotten through that emotional part. Now what? So if I'm talking to someone and they're highly emotional, I have these conversations every day. One tool, if I'm hearing you correctly, that I can do to improve as a lawyer in communicating with my clients is to say, what are you feeling about this? Are you anxious? Are you angry? Are you a combination of those items? And kind of somehow ask a question that leaves space for something else. Absolutely. And you probably have a story in your head about the emotion that they're feeling. And so you can offer that and say, it, it, it seems to me like you're, you're feeling almost a sense of despair right now. Is that what's happening for you? And they'll either be like, oh, yes, right? They'll feel like so seen, heard, understood, or it might be different. They'll say, no, it's really not, it's not, it's not despair. I feel, and they're going to, you know, correct you, but then they're getting themselves into the place of understanding that emotional state. And then that leads to better problem solving. Yeah. It actually reduces the emotional intensity. It brings it down to a more palatable level and then we can, you know, work through it. It's all about giving people the skills that are necessary to collaborate. And a piece of it is this interest-based negotiation and problem solving. And so when I think about people being really, really intentional and having all of these tools, I, I picture, imagine two people who are trying to make a lot of decisions together, right? About how they are going to um, separate their lives, but keep them together to the extent they need to. And each person clearly understands what their interests are. Well, then we get to look at those interests together and say, so what solutions can we come up with that will meet the majority of these interests or potentially all of them? And it gets us away from the, you know, I'm, this is my position, this is my position, and now we're going to butt heads about it. Interests tend to be a lot more flexible and we tend to make much better decisions. We come up with much better solutions when we're really, really clear about what those intentions are. And my favorite example, and Seth, this might be something that you're familiar with. Have you heard the the little story about the two sisters that are fighting over the last orange? I have not. Okay, so if you had, I know you've got Kai, if you had 
two kids and they were fighting over an orange and you come in, what's your solution? Divide it in half. Cut the orange in half, right? Classic parent solution. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that would be the position, right? One kid wants the orange, the other kid wants the orange. They appear incompatible. If you dig a little deeper and say, tell me more about what is important to you about this orange, right? Like, what are your interests here? What you would find out is that one of the kids wants the orange to squeeze fresh orange juice. And the other kid wants the orange for the orange peel to put it into a recipe that she's baking. And so if they took even a little bit more time to get clear about, well, what are their interests? They would actually see that perhaps they're not fully in conflict. Sometimes they are, right? It's not always like utopian, but it's just an example that helps you see like, oh, cutting the orange in half, you know, one sister would have gotten only half the orange juice and she could have had all of it. So slowing down and getting clear about interests, while it may seem like or overly formulaic or something like that, I think it can be really, really effective. Well, this goes back, Pete, to what Dr. Gaze was talking about in the collaborative process, yeah. where you focus more on interests and less on positions. Usually parents interests are aligned how they get there might be different we want our kids to be healthy we want them to have a good education we would like them to participate in extracurricular activities it gets sticky when well which parents location is going to be the better education that's a position right which how much is the extracurricular activity who's going to pay for it that's a position but ultimately their interest when it comes to the kids i think are probably in line um and focusing on that's probably not a bad way to talk to your lawyer instead of saying this is what i want in a positional aspect but hey how do i make sure my kids have a great education even though we're getting divorced that's really important from a human side too you know a big piece of of the work that i do is to help people understand which of my interests really relate to how i want to feel about myself and so i might have an interest for example to feel like I mattered, you know, like if I, let's say that my former spouse is already like moving on, you know, maybe he's already engaged to the next person and we're still trying to figure out like, maybe for me, it's vulnerable to admit and say out loud, but man, it would just be in my interest to actually hear this person say that I mattered, right. Or that I matter still those types of things, like the human level, this is an interest to me. We don't always know what those are on the surface. And that's where it tends to just manifest as like the blaming and the playing the victim and, you know, just feeling like the world is so unfair. And so taking that time to think through what are the interests I have as it pertains to my own self-concept, how I feel about me. I'm sure there's someone listening right now, like my ex is never going to tell me that I mattered. And I get that. I hear that. But I will tell you that sometimes people will not share that information with you directly, but with others. And what I mean by that, I've had opposing counsel say, hey, I just want to let you know my client was just telling me what a great mom your client is. <laughs> and I was like, great, I really appreciate I that. And then when I talk to my client, I'm like, are you sitting down? Are you not driving your car? I want to make sure, like, you good? They're like, what, do you have something bad to tell me? I'm like, no, it's really good, but I don't, you're, I'm like, let me tell you what I just heard from opposing counsel. What? That Mm -hmm. your former spouse said that you're a really great mom. Mm -hmm. And it's like, holy shit. Why doesn't he tell me? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't go to the negative. (laughs) Accept it. Just take that in. Right. And if they're telling their lawyer, right, then you know, it's going to be 
true. If they're saying something good about you to their lawyer, it's a true statement. Not all the bad things they say about you are true, but if it's a if it's something good, it's usually a true statement on how people are feeling. That, yeah. <laughs> how you get that out of your ex-spouse, I don't know. I mean, vulnerability, yeah. which can be magic. It can be magic. Because right? how many, the flip side <laughs> of that is how many people would go to their former spouse and say, hey, I noticed I feel really insecure about this. I, I just want to know, truthfully, did I matter to you? Yeah. That's vulnerable. Right. That's, that's super vulnerable. So if I do that, I feel like it's extremely unlikely. God, what if they say no? Vulnerability is courageous and courage is contagious. It's extreme. I mean, I don't know. Can you picture, seriously picture one of your clients genuinely mustering enough courage to be that vulnerable and have somebody like metaphorically spit in their face by saying, no, he didn't matter? Yes. I hate to say it. I deal with really good people through really bad times. And I I could see some people taking that opportunity just to spit in their face yeah, metaphorically. To twist the knife. I, could, I, I, I see a lot of people doing a lot of hurtful things yeah. to each other. So unfortunately, that wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. I think the majority of people would say... Yes. And the thing to know, of course, about the person that would choose to metaphorically spit in the in the face of somebody who's being that vulnerable is that that person is wrecked with self-loathing. Yeah. They're only going to treat somebody like that when they are in so much pain themselves. And so it makes it a little easier. Yeah. In, in so many ways, like you've heard all you need to hear just by hearing them say that because yeah. they're, they're oh, clearly <laughs> like symptomatic right now and they're just like oozing bile all over you. But validation, that's them seeking their own thing. All right. But the person going through the divorce, maybe they could just think that to themselves, right? Like, as much as I'd love to hear this person tell me that I mattered, I know that I did. Right. And I and I think that, you know, working with a therapist or uh, a skilled friend who's a good empathic listener, they could say, well, so let's just think about it, right? Like, what evidence can we gather in support of the hypothesis that you did matter? Probably a lot of things. Let's come up with it. That sounds like a doctor. That sounds like someone with a PhD. What evidence can we gather to support your hypothesis? Those words never come out of my mouth. I'm just a really big nerd. That's just the thing to know about me. Well, I'm the law nerd. You can be the psych nerd. We're all good. This is really useful. And I think if I'm just looking at in terms of summing up, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, what, what am I getting out of that? I think this conversation about understanding when you or your former spouse are coming at uh, uh, the separation with the lizard brain fully engaged is something to be able to to build a muscle about this. This idea to uh, to be focused on interests, like to really look at at deeper the story of the orange and the two kids is fantastic. And maybe it's not I want the orange just so you don't have it. And so I think this this idea of of collaborative compassion is is really important in this process please take some time make some notes journal with yourself if you need to make that list of reasons you mattered in this relationship uh, and as you wind your way toward the end of it what do you think anything i missed i love that summary well thank you very look at that Seth. she said she loved my summary <laughs> wow I, you know it went through my head like wow Pete, you should be a lawyer I almost thought you should be a lawyer. Like you summarized that. So that closing yeah. argument was phenomenal. <laughs> I have not. I have not been more proud since that one time that one guy said I could pass for a Canadian. How about that? <laughs> this has been fantastic. Laura Gallagher, where would you like us to send people who want to learn more about you and your work? Oh, I think the best place would be to go to GallagherEdge.com. That's the website. 
do you want to do you want to pitch your podcast on our podcast? Oh, sure. Yeah, I have my own podcast. It's called The Evolved Leader. So I primarily work with uh, leaders on creating amazing culture and bringing these same kinds of ideas to help people do better problem solving at work. It is great work. Thank you so much, Laura Gallagher, for joining us on the show. You're uh, you're fantastic. And I hope this isn't the last time we talk to you. Thanks, Pete. Thank you, Seth. Take care. On behalf of the good uh, Laura Gallagher and Seth Nelson, I'm Pete Wright. And we'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.